it, essentially, one of the things that we have been talking about, and we're going to highlight that in some of the passages we've been looking at, and we're going to look at this morning, is it's very important for us to understand the difference between vertical morality and horizontal morality. When we talk about vertical, we're talking about straight up into the skies. When we talk about vertical, vertical morality, we're talking about the morality that matters in our life before God. And, and we're talking about following those rules and following those um, pieces of wisdom that we believe make God pleased with us and, and, and cause God to be happier with our choices rather than frown upon our choices. And uh, the other kind of morality is horizontal morality. Horizontal morality is like the horizon. And what we're talking about there is how we treat one another. Now, if you put these ideas together of a vertical morality and a horizontal morality, you have the call to a cruciform life, which is exactly what Jesus modeled and what God, what, what Jesus calls us to. But really, it's even more significant than that because what we'll see in the Bible and the teaching of Jesus is there is no true vertical morality unless it bears fruit in horizontal morality. That's the big shocker in the teaching of Jesus and even further in the teachings of Paul, that, there, that, that vertical morality is meaningless unless it bears the fruit of horizontal morality. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that this, this morning. Um, we, we, as we've talked about the difference in the two covenant approaches, old covenant and new covenant, and uh, in the past few weeks, one of the things that we talked about is when you think about the former pagan religions that preceded Christianity, or if you think about the way of life in Judaism, all of these are the backdrops of the lifestyles that the Christians are coming out of in the New Testament. And so that's the context in which they're given these instructions. And one of the things we said is that old covenant, that former way of thinking presents a God above you um, understanding of God. But what Jesus comes to reveal is what is celebrated all throughout the Old Testament of the day that's coming when there'll be a new covenant and things are going to ch change radically. And the revelation that Jesus came to bring was fuller than the God above you understanding. He reveals the God in you reality of God. And that's what Jesus modeled. That's how he lived. And this is really pretty much the theme of the book of Colossians we've been talking about. So the, the God above you tends to cause us to think more about evaluating our lives in terms of vertical morality. Now the problem with that is once we get in that trap, we, 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 we work really hard to have a disciplined religious life that pleases God, but then we tend to live, leave our faith at the door when it comes to interacting in our personal relationships. And this is a mistake. The God in you, revelation of God, invites us to appreciate the reality of horizontal morality. Because the truth is, if you want to see the presence of God, all you have to do is look into the eyes of the people that are sitting around you, who are made in his image and who literally house the presence of God along with you. So essentially, this week at VBS, we didn't quite go into it from that angle. Uh, essentially, the, the themes of VBS was number one, God is love. Number two, that uh, uh, um, love is the point of our faith. And number three, love is action. Love acts, love does. So this morning, I want us to think about these concepts as we get ready to kind of break into our holiday weekend. Love is God's nature. Love is the point of faith and love does. Love is God's nature. 
Love is the point of faith. And finally, love does. So let's take a look at this. Uh, the foundational verse of the curriculum this week is in 1 John 4, 16. So, and let me pause before we jump right into this. The other reason why I wanted to do this is I was talking to a friend of mine and um, you know, there's a story in the Old Testament. It's a story that we're all familiar with because it has been read and talked about and revamped and reinterpreted a thousand times. And uh, it's the story of David and Goliath. And in that story, there's this moment where Saul, uh, David uh, volunteers to take on the champion. And the first thing that the former generation of leadership does is give to David what worked for him called Saul's armor, and it worked fine for Saul. And, and this isn't a statement of condemnation about God's, Saul's armor. And Saul was legitimately doing what he thought was best. Well, if there's a new generation of warrior being, uh, being raised up by Yahweh, I'm gonna give to them what worked for me. But the problem was, is that it didn't work for David. And David had enough courage in his heart to say, this armor will not work for me. And it's so important for us to discern the seasons of our life. When are we called to put on our armor and when are we called to set it aside and train another generation of leadership without making them do what we did? We have to encourage them to find what is gonna work for them, how God has put them together. And so there's that place in there where David recognizes, I'm sorry, I can't use this armor. It's not fitting for me. I'm gonna use what I know. And in the same way, uh, it's funny that we celebrate David when he makes that choice, but then we condemn people like the ex-evangelicals or the millennials who are leaving the church because the armor of faith of the current generation isn't fitting for them. It doesn't fit. It's not working for them. Well, we condemn them for rejecting Saul's armor. When in reality, what if they're just on the same pursuit of David of trying to connect with how God's called them to reach out and minister to their generation? Then like David, we ought to celebrate that pursuit. So if you are in that place where you're recognizing that the Holy Spirit is making the faith of our fathers become the faith of your father, and we all have to go through that transition at some point, it might be 20, it might be 50, but we all have to work through that foundation. Well, it can get pretty scary because if you've ever been called to deconstruct the idolatrous ways in which you believed man-centered theological systems of ideology rather than entrusting the living Christ and the Holy Spirit begins to stir up questions in your heart. I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's like you look down at your Christmas sweater and you see a little frayed thread at the bottom. So you start yanking on that thing, which, you know, first my mom used to yell at me for, now my wife does, and now my daughters do too. Um, but you start pulling at that thing instead of just cutting it off and tying it off, and all of a sudden it starts to unravel and unravel and unravel, and you're exploring these questions, you're going into this new phase where you've got permission to ask questions you haven't asked before, you've got, per you've got permission, you've created some space to be honest and say, well, I've always affirmed that, but really in my mind, I've never totally believed that because I don't really comprehend it. And you start having that space and it feels so invigorating at first. And maybe you don't like sweaters and maybe the cool of the breeze on your belly is just feeling really good and you're feeling really encouraged. And then all of a sudden, you look down and now you're scrambling for a shirt. And in that moment, you feel panic, you feel insecurity, you feel uncertainty, and that's okay. 
That is part of the journey of shedding the former self that you were in one season so God can recreate you to be who you're supposed to be in the next season. And that's the normal journey of faith. But one of the things that's important in that time is that you may say, I used to believe 75 things about God and my faith that I was absolutely sure of, and now I'm down to about three. That's okay. In fact, that might be growth. That might be maturity. Sometimes growth is in becoming what we weren't before, but sometimes growth is shedding who we were formerly because God has something new. And so during that time, I was speaking with a friend today, uh, this week, and one of the things as we were talking about that journey is how helpful it is to take time, whether it's whatever you do, whether you fish, whether you go for walks, whether you journal, whatever you do, it's important for you to know what you actually still believe, even if you're in a season of questioning or deconstructing your faith and you're awaiting that reconstruction because the key to the reconstruction is going to be understanding what you affirm. So one of the things I wanted to do is I wanted to take these three themes of VBS this week and submit to you uh, the possibility that affirming these three foundational truths are necessary in order to continue growing to the next season that God's taking you to. And so, uh, so let's, we, I've kind of framed the discussion that way. So we're talking about the fact that love is God's nature. The very first foundational conviction in building a healthy spirituality is in understanding and trusting that God's very nature is love and goodwill that God's very nature is love and goodwill. The way John says it in 1 John 4, 16 is very simple. And we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. This is the first foundation, not that God is loving, although he is, but it's more than just an action he chooses to pursue it is the very expression of the essence of who he is. So everything that we know and understand and celebrate and appreciate about love comes from the fact that we are made in his image, which means you were made in the image of love. In fact, when we say in Christ, all things hold together, we could just as easily say in love, all things hold together. Why? Because love is the very nature of God and the very nature of God that Christ came to express. Now, of course, you're probably familiar with the various words used in Greek for love. If not, you can use the Google this afternoon and have a good time reading. We're just going to focus on one of those, which is the one that John uses here, and it's the word agape. Now, the root word in the Greek from which we get agape simply means to prefer. And agape itself means love and goodwill. So when we talk about divine love, we're talking about that which God prefers, which I really love that idea because it doesn't mean just that, because sometimes you say God loves you, God loves you. And uh, I, I won't name my, my sources and my friend, but one, sometimes when my friend is feeling uh, a little less than kind, uh, he likes to say to me, Artie, God loves you. Of course, he loves everyone. And, and there, there is something to that little joke, that little zinger, though. Yeah, have you ever felt that way? To like somehow, like, God loving everyone kind of feels like he doesn't love anyone personally. But, but, but it's not just, 
it's not just that, um, that God loves you. The reason why God loves you isn't just because he, he's required to love anybody. What agape says is God loves you because he really prefers you. He prefers you. I've spent 50 years trying to change embarrassing quirks about my life, and it finally dawned on me this sermon, this, this season of my life. Maybe God put me together like that because for some weird reason, he enjoys it. Maybe my twisted humor is in some weird way a reflection of God's uh, nature. Uh, he's the creator, not me. And I'm fighting against so many things that embarrass me that but might bring him joy. And the same is true for you. God loves you, but it's more than just he loves you in principle. He has a preference for you. In the same way that you can come into this room if you were a parent this week and see 70 energetic kids running around playing and there's all this joy of youth and all this joy of childhood, and yet when you look across the crowd, you're usually scanning for what? Your own children. And why is that? Because you may love all of these kids, but there's a preference that you have for a few of them. What we can't comprehend is God's love means that he shows preference toward us. And it also means that there's a way that he prefers we treat one another and that we treat others throughout the world. He has a preference and that preference is in keeping with agape. It's in keeping with divine love. So one of the ways, primary ways, we experience remaining connected to God is by remaining committed to love. What, what John says here is that we have come to know and we've come to believe. Now, I'm not gonna go into the nerdy stuff that I think might be in your notes. You can look that up later or go to the Google. But, but, but all that I wanted to highlight in these two words is come to know and come to believe. Because what this word means is come to know has to do with um, a, a properly, it means learning by personal experience. It's the word gnosko in the Greek. It means to know, especially through personal experience or firsthand acquaintance. And that phrase, come to believe, means to not just to believe, but to entrust. In other words, it is that we come to understand God's love in such a way that we act upon that revelation. We entrust it. We, we entrust ourselves to it. So theologically, we may affirm God is love, but what I'm curious about is personally, have you entrusted yourself to that reality in such a way that it's opened up the door to experience that in your heart? Because it's not enough to affirm correct doctrine. We have to enter in and entrust ourselves and have this experience of the living Christ and God's love in our heart for it to make the necessary transformation and become consistent with who we are. And therefore, you don't ever have to strive to serve God. If you will let God make of you who you're intended to be and then just be yourself, that's all the work you have to do. If I'm striving, trying to get it right, it's because I believe I'm working in contradiction to my nature. And that, friends, will never work. It will burn you out. It will exhaust you. But if you can entrust yourself to God's love, you can share that love with others, but it's absolutely necessary that that's the first step. That is more important than any apologetics class. It's more important than learning how to pray for your unsaved friends and neighbors. It's more important to being bold enough to speak a verbal witness or invite them to church. The most important step for your witness is to believe that you are loved by God. It is to believe that you are preferred by him because you will never share love with your neighbor that you don't share with yourself. Jesus says this. 
We are called to love our neighbor as ourselves. But what if we don't love ourselves? Then that's where we have to begin because that's where God's love has to touch us. And when it does, then it's no longer, ministry isn't a performance. It's just you sharing the thing that causes your heart to come on fire. If you want an example of this, he's not here this morning. When my son-in-law is here, ask him about bass fishing, but make sure you've carved out at least half an hour because you're gonna see that come out of his heart and it's very inspirational. I have lots of tackle and fishing poles that I don't use but a quarter of the time that Che uses them. But why is that? It's because it was in his heart. That's the thing. Once God's transformational love is the truth of your heart, ministry is so easy. You just be yourself and share it with others. So the very first foundational conviction in building a healthy spirituality is understanding and trusting that God's very nature is love and goodwill. Now, that doesn't mean that's going to take away your questions. You're going to say, I believe it. I entrust myself to it. And then you're going to open your one-year Bible and you're going to read some kind of weird war passage from the book of Deuteronomy or the conquest passages. And then you're going to go into confusion again. It's okay to feel that confusion. But when you do, you stop and say, okay, this is confusing me. I don't understand how all this connects, but I'm going to go back to what I know to be true, which is God is love. The very nature of who he is, is love and goodwill. And therefore, if this is really bugging me, I'm going to pursue trying to understand this concept, but I'm going to do it from a vantage point of trusting that God is love and goodwill. So that's the first place we begin. The second foundational conviction in building a healthy spirituality is affirming that any religious activity that is not motivated by love is useless. Those are bold words, and I am not a bold man. I only speak those bold words because they're written in a book that's bolder than I. But let it sink in for a second. Any religious activity that is not motivated by love is useless. Now, if I find that to be true, it creates a little challenge for me because the majority of my life, my motivation for what I did was fear of what would happen if I didn't do it. Now, if I was lucky, I rose above that. And instead of my motivation, fear of what would happen if I didn't do it, I got a little bit of a revelation of hoping what would happen to me as a reward for doing it. But all I had was massive amounts of fear and a little bit of hope motivating me. But when I encountered God's love and that transformation took place, then all of a sudden there was a whole new motive. And then it didn't really matter the consequences, be they quote negative or positive, because I could still understand how to keep in step with the spirit by living in that rhythm of divine love, both for myself and for those around me. So here's what, how, the way Paul says it. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses one through three, and then we'll drop down and look at the tag end verse at the end, verse 13. Paul writes this, if I speak human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now for those of us who this week that 
verse has a more dramatic flair because in illustration, uh, Grant played a man that was trying to learn to play the cymbals and I really should have had him come up here and attempt that this morning. But it's just clanging, yeah, it's not good. This is what, yeah, <laughs> just, sorry, Grant. Well, your character's playing wasn't good. I'm sure you're exceptional. Um, but think about what he's saying here. If I have a spiritual experience and I can speak in the tongues of angels, in other words, He's not contrasting this with false religious experiences. He's not saying that. He's saying, yeah, you may have had an experience with God, but if it doesn't terminate in making you a more loving person, then you're just noise. Even if you're right in what your tongue proclaims, you're still noise without love. Then he goes on to say, if I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. Which is interesting because Paul highlights and celebrates all the same things that we highlight and celebrate. You know, it's, it's desirable to be someone who hears the Spirit and understands mysteries and is able to communicate and uh, the, 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 the mysteries of the depths of the knowledge of God. But what Paul says, he, he doesn't say the enemy of good theology is bad theology. He says the enemy of good theology is not loving. That's the real enemy. So even if you do understand those things, you won't be of use to anyone if you don't have love as the binding and motivating factor. Well, that's not all. He goes on, verse three. And if I give away all my possessions, and if I give over my body in order to boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Which is again interesting because the way that we uh, talk about and are inspired by stories of martyrdom and suffering. And, uh, and, and various times throughout evangelical movement, you'll see these swells of interest in martyrdom and, and like maybe people will start reading Fox's Book of Martyrs again and so forth. And, and it's easy for us to imagine that, hey, that's a shoe-in. Someone who's willing to die for their faith clearly has a, a, a leg up on the rest of us spirituality, spiritually. But the truth is, it's important for us to understand, and I'm talking about evaluating our own motives. I'm not speaking to the experience of anyone in the, in the past. But the truth of the matter is, it is possible to have the constitution that you're willing to both fight, die, and kill for your faith, but you're unable to live for Jesus. And that's what Paul says. Even if I give away all my possessions, I do this magnanimous gesture of compassion, even if I'm willing to die for my faith, but I don't have love, then it profits me nothing. So religious activity without love as its motivation is useless. And then finally he says this, now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. If you come from a more of a maybe evangelical background, you might think that the greatest of these is faith because we put premium importance on making sure everyone has the right belief system in place. And again, I'm not saying it is useless. 
Clearly, it's in a list of virtues, although I don't think faith is your ideology. I think faith is your trust in your revelation of God. But my point is, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest virtue, the quintessential Christian virtue is love. And without it, I am nothing. And it doesn't matter how much I advance in my religious understanding or my spiritual experience. You know, what I think is interesting about that is in many things, this mystery of God, this dying for God, that speaking from the tongue of angels, do you see, this is all realm in the realm of private vertical type of morality and vertical type experience. And what Paul says, that's fine, but unless it terminates in love horizontally, then it doesn't mean anything. And this idea that God's preference is horizontal morality over vertical morality is all through the Bible, not just the New Testament. In fact, it's kind of the theme of most of the major prophets in the Old Testament. So one example, which I had several, but I wisely realized very quickly that although that I was nerding out on all these verses and thought it would be so fun for us to read them together, I was quickly going to have us here until afternoon. So I cut some of these, but Isaiah 58 is a good one. If you want to, you can turn in your Bible, but we're going to be, we're going to be looking at it up here on the screen. But in Isaiah 58, We'll read uh, verses 6 through 10, but really the whole 1 through 10 is important because what you have preceding chapter 5, verse uh, 6, is this idea where Israel is confused. They're in consternation because they're doing all the private morality things they're supposed to do in terms of fasting and prayer, and yet Yahweh doesn't seem to be responding. And then they're like, the, the, the prophet Isaiah is speaking on behalf of the people. They're frustrated and they're kind of like, what gives? What gives, God? We're doing all the stuff that you said you wanted us to do. And what's interesting about the prophecy of Isaiah is the answer is, you're not. You have turned the decrees of my heart into a privatized vertical morality when what I've wanted all along is a public horizontal morality. So they ask, why is this? We fasted, but you don't listen. In fact, I'm going to pick it up on um, verse 3. Why have we fasted, but you have not seen? See, fasted, private, vertical morality. We have denied ourselves, but you haven't noticed. So again, the morality was for what God would see, private, vertical morality. Look. Do as you please on the day of your fast. Look, okay, this is God's answer to them. Look, you do as you please on the day of your fast. And look at this, you oppress all your workers. So you've got good vertical morality, but you're failing in the horizontal morality in the way you're treating other people. You oppress all your workers. You fast with contention and strife and strike viciously with your fist. You hear all this? condemnation over horizontal morality. You cannot fast as you do today, hoping to make your voice heard on high. Will the fast I choose be like this, a day for a person to deny himself, to bow his head like a reed, and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? In other words, is this the fast I choose? All these rituals that are intended to get the intention of the God above you so that you can celebrate your vertical morality? Do you think that's what I want? 
rhetorical question. Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? And then we jump in to the contrast in verse six. Isn't this the fast I choose? To break the chains of wickedness and to untie the ropes of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to tear off every yoke. You see what he's saying? The fast I call you to isn't rituals of vertical morality. The fast I am calling you to that pleases my heart results in horizontal morality because it affects the way that you treat other people. Verse seven, is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the poor and homeless into your house, to clothe the naked when you see him and to not ignore your own flesh and blood? That verse, is that horizontal or vertical? It's horizontal. It's all about how you're treating other people around you. Then, you're, then here's what he said. If you will give yourself over to this vision of fasting as horizontal morality, then your light will appear like the dawn and your recovery will come quickly. Your righteousness will go before you and the Lord's glory will be your rear guard. At that time when you call, the Lord will answer. When you cry out, he will say, here I am. If you get rid of the yoke among you and the finger pointing and the malicious speaking, and if you offer yourself to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted one, then your light will shine in the darkness and your night will be like noonday. Now, I don't know about you, from best I can tell, I grew up both Pentecostal, Southern Baptist, and Charismaniac. All of these. So I'm a theological mutt, essentially. But what is common in both Southern Baptist and Pentecostalism and in uh, charismatic circles is the theme of revival. Revival. Now, as Charismatics and Pentecostals, we thought it could only come if we prayed it down. As Southern Baptists, we knew it could come if we would have a meeting where people had to go to church five days, nights a week. Then that was a revival. Thank you for that two chuckles. Southern Baptist brothers and sisters, unite. But this is what we believe, to have meetings in church, bring in a guest speaker, which granted in those circles tended to be better than the dude we heard every Sunday, so we were revived a little bit because the evangelist comes and just brings his five best sermons. You gotta plot through this guy week after week after week. Or in charismatic Pentecostal circles, it was like, well, if we don't have the church meeting all week, we still, we have to pray really hard. So intercession for us was just like physically exhausting yourself by pleading with Jesus to do something. You guys ever been in those? I mean, they're exhausting, but you leave feeling so much better than everybody else who didn't show up. So there is a plus. But nobody stood up and said, um, maybe we don't need another prayer meeting and another meeting at church. We just need to go out and be kind to people. Because that's what Yahweh says through Isaiah. It, it is not what you do in your rituals before me. It is being willing to go out and look, 
Not just, just notice what he says. Not feed the hungry. Give yourself to the hungry. There are scores of people in Carner County who are misunderstood, hurt, alone. They're awakened to God's love, but maybe they're confused about the direction of their own life and their own struggles. God is not calling, calling and, and, and conservatives believe that we're progressive if we tolerate them. But what does Isaiah say? Feed the hungry? That's not what he said. Do you guys see it in the text? Do you guys remember it? Give yourselves to the hungry. My hope and prayer is that we have a season in this community where we're not just known for mercy and tolerance, but we're willing to give ourselves to the broken, to the oppressed, to the marginalized, to the misunderstood. And we all have to go on our own journeys. But as I've discerned my own life and tried to understand what God's calling me to, I realized that there is a class of broken, misunderstood people. And personally, this isn't for the community. This isn't for everyone. You have to find this out on your own journey. But what I realized, I used to think I was burdened for them. And the Holy Spirit just recently corrected me and said, the reason you're burdened to them is because you belong to them. There's this place in ministry where it's not, I'm the one who has the answers and I'm giving them to you. It's this revelation that I'm called to serve you. Whether you agree with me a lot, whether you adapt my belief system or not, I am called to serve you. I am called to work for your good and to work for your freedom from oppression. My friends, this is the path of revival. This is the way America will be changed. You don't have to hold a picket sign. You don't have to march on Washington. You just have to walk out your front door and see needs and respond with mercy. You just have to see the broken and be willing to give yourself to them. And then your light will break forth like the dawn and even your darkness will be as bright as noonday. And you didn't have to exhaust yourself in order to do it. Be kind. So the second foundation, foundational conviction in building a healthy spirituality is affirming that any religious activity that is not motivated by love is useless. And then finally, the, foundational the, third, the final foundational conviction in building a healthy spirituality is to embody the truth that love is as love does. It's not with the lips, it's with the actions. We're going to reference Luke 10, verses 25 through 37. For sake of time, we're not going to read all of it. You're probably familiar with it. It's a story that Jesus told when he's asked, what do I need to do to receive eternal life? And Jesus says, well, what does the law say? Love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And then the text says this, and the lawyer, and then he peers back his motive, wishing to justify himself, which is to say, looking for a loophole to make loving my neighbor more palatable. 
he asks, and who is my neighbor? And then Jesus tells this audacious story. Now, in the context of telling this parable, the main, the, the, most of the characters are Jewish. It probably would have been assumed that the man on the side of the road was a Jew, and of course the priest and the Levite were also Jews. But the hero of the story is the Samaritan. Now, if you want to imagine the emotional impact this story would have had on Jesus' hearers, listeners, imagine the people, the person, or the people group that you deem as your ideological enemies. These are the people you cancel on Facebook. You unfriend them or you mute them. These are the political ideologies that you believe are just so wicked and evil that anyone who happens to be on that side of the aisle has to be a monster. And it can go on either side. Now, get that person, that people group, that ideology in your mind. Now, can you imagine Jesus telling a story that made them the hero? That he, told, that he tells it at the end of the story, go and do like they did. That's what Jesus is doing here. To his audience, the hero is not a hero at all. It's an anti-hero. The hero in Jesus' story doesn't have the right theology. He doesn't have the right understanding of worship. And yet, this is the one that Jesus affirms. In fact, what he says at the end of the text in verses 36 and 37 is this. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers. Verse 37, the one who showed mercy to him, he said. He can't even say the Samaritan. He says, the one who showed mercy to him. And then what Jesus says, then Jesus told him, go and do the same. Now what Jesus is doing here is he's not just saying, go and be nice. He's not just saying, go and be kind. What he is saying, go and show mercy to those who your ideology tells you doesn't deserve mercy. That's what he's doing here. That's what's so uncomfortable about this story. The hero of the story had heretical beliefs, according to the vantage point of his listeners, heretical beliefs and an under-informed understanding of proper worship. So why then is he the hero? He's the hero and the example because he chooses merciful actions to help another in need. Now let's just wrestle with this. And if you have, you know, it's fine. Go read Luke 10. Talk with your people. Let's, let's have some coffee and talk about it. Let's wrestle with the scriptures together because I know this is a challenge for those of us that were taught. It doesn't really matter what you do if you don't believe the right things. Because, again, Jesus is not telling a parable to buttress evangelical theology. Jesus precedes all organized Christianity. So he doesn't submit to the expectations of organized Christianity. Organized Christianity ought to be submitting to the authority and the words of Jesus. And so this is what he says. It's not just that he showed mercy, but that he took responsibility to show mercy to someone who would have considered him an enemy. He chose to show mercy to someone who would have judged him as being 
unworthy of mercy. And that's the person he chose to show mercy to. The one with the less informed and less precise belief system is the one we are called to emulate because he is the one who chose Christ-like action. Now again, sometimes I'm misunderstood. I am not saying that beliefs are useless. And I do believe there is better and worse theology. And worse theology has a lot more undesirable consequences than healthier theology. So I'm not saying it's unimportant, but what I'm saying is that sometimes in the Christendom, the tail wags the dog. We get it backwards. What's most important is that whatever our belief system is, it leads us to publicly show acts of mercy to those who might consider us their enemy or may even consider us unworthy of the mercy that we're showing to them. That is when our faith has come to fruition and maturity. And I promise you, no one is leaving the evangelical church because they're overwhelmed with all the Christ-likeness. No one's leaving for that reason. So this is the corrective for us. It's not to rail against their unbelief. It's not to fight culture wars to win them back. If we submit to Jesus, he'll draw them exactly where they need to be. Christ-likeness will create the revival we long for. One pastor said it this way, the sons of thunder, in talking about our beliefs and our actions, the sons of thunder, James and John, wanted to call fire down from heaven on a Samaritan village who refused to welcome Jesus. In their petition, they were able to cite scripture because Elijah had done this. But Jesus do know what manner of spirit you are of. From the tradition of conviction. And Jesus said, right words and you're quoting the holy book but you have no idea the question isn't husbands your call is not to be a biblical husband it's to be a Christ-centered husband biblical husbands offer their wives to other men so that they'll be protected that's what heroes of our faith done, have done. Biblical husbands, just go read just the book of Genesis. Commit atrocity and sin after atrocity of sin. The question isn't what's the biblical example. It's what's Christ-centered. What's Christ-like. And therefore, as we build our life around these foundations, God's very nature is love. Religious activity without, that isn't motivated by love is useless. And finally, love is as love does, acts out. As we build our lives, if we construct our faith around this, then we are going to have something that is going to be used by God to bring a revival to a whole new generation of Christians. I believe that with all my heart. And the joy is we are invited to participate in that move that God is inspiring all throughout the world. So in conclusion, understand 
and trust that God's very nature is love and goodwill. Affirm that any religious activity that is not motivated by love is useless and embody the truth that love is as love does. Now, 